Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So Chad emphasized the need to reclaim the stories of our scripture. And again, because without these sacred stories, what stories have a claim on us? What stories do we tell about ourselves and our people? What stories are silenced and ignored? As many of you know, and as Chad mentioned, I am working on a book project with a preliminary title, thank you, I'll need that encouragement. (laughs) Bloodlines, landlines, songlines, mapping settler responsibility. And I'm trying to ask these questions. One about identity formation. Who are we? What do we carry in our bones? Where and why do we do our work as disciples and activists? And how do we build moral imagination, spiritual resilience, and political courage. So the conceptual framework that I'm developing is best shown through this Venn diagram. The three intersecting circles are surrounded by a bigger circle of storylines and communal narratives. Because of course, we tell stories about each of these three circles. The first circle is landlines and it has two parts. Part one is where we came from. So this has to do with our personal and communal ancestral immigrant histories, whether they were voluntary or forced, including the impact of larger patterns of conquest and colonization, no matter which side of that equation one's people were on. And part two is where we came to. This is about learning the histories of the land where we have settled or been forcibly brought. And that includes past and present realities of indigenous peoples and other marginalized and oppressed communities. Bloodlines is the second circle, and this is what we carry. This is our embodied story, what we have inherited by virtue of our familial, racial, ethnic, gender, and cultural formation. It includes the particularities of by and with whom and how we were raised, as well as what we have inherited biologically and psychically. This morning, I will focus on the third circle, song lines. This is what transforms us. These are the stories of conviction that we live by, that motivate us in the struggle for justice and healing. Song lines are the redemptive stories of liberation, the deep tradition of religion and community. They remind us how to be human. Many of us gathered in this room have similar song lines because they brought us here. 
Song lines often function in tension with our inherited landlines and bloodlines. And when we defect from our family, community, or race, class, or gender in the cause of justice, what motivates us and what backs us up are our song lines. We need these stories to carry on and find our way because we are surrounded by master narratives that are dysfunctional, destructive, and dehumanizing. These are the fantasies of endless growth, imperial violence, and other predatory narratives which are being spun relentlessly in the Trump era. Nicholas Cruz, the shooter, last week in Florida, bought in to that horrific white supremacist myth of make America great again. Some of our communal narratives are deeply informed and shaped by song lines. Others are a mix of dominant fantasies and lies, such as the inherent superiority of whiteness, manifest destiny, or the doctrine of discovery. Communal narratives are political, personal, and familial. Our task is on the one hand to more critically and conscientiously understand the stories that we carry in our hearts, minds, and bones, both inspiring song lines and dysfunctional myths. And on the other hand, we have the responsibility to learn the stories of the place that we have walked into. This is difficult work, and part of what makes it so challenging is the fact that we are socialized, either as US-born or as immigrants, into narratives that are often distorted and devised. Whereas the native stories of our places are repeatedly disappeared or dismembered. These communal narratives are constructed by many trajectories and traditions including family lore, local legends, established community accounts, and even uh, regional and national myths. They're imprinted onto our psyche and soul through family traditions, race and class socialization, the education system, and the dominant media. I am doing this work as a descendant of European settlers to the Canadian prairies and as a migratory settler myself into Chumash territory. So all of us, whether we are old or new immigrant or displaced persons, are shaped by communal narratives. And so are the communities who are not even their subjects. Our stories are precious, but some of them are also problematic because again, they distort and devise the histories of peoples and places. Take what is now an obvious example, the trite old trope that Columbus discovered America. It clearly functions to reinforce the long-standing European presumption of terra nullius, the myth that the lands to which Europeans came was uninhabited and there for the taking. This grand narrative of European entitlement represents a persistent devising of history, 
and it continues to wield widespread cultural power and persuasion. The great writer activist, thank you for staying with me, Audre Lorde, whose birthday we recognized just this past weekend, challenged us to do our own work, by which she meant to confront the truth about our socially constructed identities, both personally and politically. Again, I am a descendant of refugees who now enjoys considerable social privilege. My work is to come to critical consciousness about the communal narratives and song lines that I have inherited. And I must struggle to revise, devise narratives and remember dismembered stories. Revising devised narratives includes three challenging tasks. And I'm speaking to the majority of the room here when I say we settlers need to identify within our communal stories tendencies towards heroism and superiority. For example, our ancestors, ancestors came to this land and made it better. Two, we need to acknowledge the privileges we Euro-Americans have received in the past and continue to benefit from. And thirdly, we also need to remember the stories that have been disappeared or dismembered by the dominant culture. And this involves learning a more complete and honest history of the lands in which we have settled and giving priority to the story of indigenous peoples and other oppressed communities. I call this work embracing historical response ability. For European settler descendants like me, newer immigrants for Su and Hyun, this involves a critical investigation of the following three layers of identity formation. First, encountering the truth about our immigrant history, where we came from, and why and how we left. Two, encountering the truth about the history of this land and the peoples that we came to. And three, this is in order to hold our communal stories accountable to the truths that we have encountered. And I use this term encounter here rather than learn because this is not only about head knowledge. It requires a complete engagement of the mind and heart, body and soul. This is the kind of work required for us to live into restorative solidarity with communities struggling for justice in the places we have settled. So I want to say a brief word about each of these three areas of engagement. Many of us, particularly from the dominant culture, typically ignore the deepest two layers of the colonial project. The destruction of indigenous cultures and peoples and the violent removal of millions of Africans to the Americas in the slave trade. This denial is compounded by settler tendency to shed our European ethnicity and assimilate into white privilege. And I believe that shrugging off that our painful history is a part of white privilege. And so the first step of undoing that privilege 
is to learn as much as we can about our ancestral history, including its silences. Our mentor, Dr. Vincent Harding, of blessed memory, used to begin his facilitation of groups by asking this question. What language did your mama's mama speak? How were distinctive cultural traditions lost in your family through assimilation? Shedding European ethnicity and assuming white privileges involves distancing ourselves from our ancestors. Thus, even if we do know something of our heritage, many of us are not particularly interested in discussing it. It just isn't that important. But this ambivalence not only renders us orphans, it also functions to suppress or dismiss the history of colonization, settlement, and assimilation. Because of this assimilation to white privilege, we are a nation with a long history of anti-immigrant prejudice. Trump's policies assume that immigrants are a threat. This graph shows how in 1910, the good old days, according to Trump, the percentage of foreign-born in the U.S. was actually higher than today. So it is important for us to understand the realities of why and how people come to this country. There are many whose immigration was forced and involuntary. And also for most others, immigration has been part of a struggle to survive. If in our assimilation we tend to ignore our family histories, how much more do we overlook the structural forces that impel immigration from generation to generation? This denial, too, is a part of white privilege, which is to say, loss of identity. Throughout history, the political winds of conquest and settlement and the global economic currents of boom and bust have pushed and pulled people like great tides, and it continues to do so. I'll briefly just summarize the three most important ones. But keep your family history of immigration or displacement in mind. First, war has been and continues to be a major factor. We can trace immigration patterns over the last half century directly to the impact of U.S. military policies toward sending countries. For example, the U.S. intervention in the Dominican Republic brought some 60,000 Dominicans to the U.S. in the 1960s. The war in Indochina brought tens of thousands of Southeast Asians as refugees in the 1970s. A decade of U.S.-sponsored counterinsurgency warfare in the 1980s in Central America brought hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans, Nicaraguans, and Guatemalans. And over the last quarter century, U.S. interventions in the Middle East have significantly increased Arab population. <coughs> I know these forces in my own bones. Again, I'm a descendant 
of Mennonites who came from Russia to Canada in the 1920s after the Russian Civil War, during which my people endured much violence. These events spawned intergenerational trauma among us, many, much of which is un unacknowledged. And this may be true in your community as well. How do you carry in your bones wounds resulting from either how your people might have been the victims of war or perhaps the beneficiaries? Economic policies are the second major force that drives immigration. For example, industrialization and its relentless resource and labor extraction has moved people around the globe for centuries. From African Americans fleeing the Jim Crow South to the North to work in factories, to Mexican and Haitian farm labor imported in multiple ways to work in the fields of industrial agriculture. What are the political forces of boom or bust or poverty or affluence shaped the movement of your people? And then thirdly, these economic forces also determine political currents, the third great force, particularly around fluctuations in U.S. immigration policy over time. For example, during the railroad boom of the 1860s and 70s, Chinese contract laborers were actively recruited. But in 1882, as the railroad bubble was bursting, the Chinese exclusion law was passed. Similarly, Mexican workers were actively sought during World War I to, due to a labor shortage. A half a million were then deported during the Depression of the 1930s. Mexican agricultural workers were again recruited during World War II through the Bracero program, only to be deported again in the Eisenhower administration's Operation Wetback. Does this sound familiar? In my family history, all four of my grandparents immigrated to Canada between 1923 and 29, along with some 20,000 other Russian Mennonites. This changed the Canadian prairies forever. The political forces of social upheaval in one part of the world and colonial strategies of settlement of the frontier lands in the other shaped my community's immigration story. How did political opportunity or oppression move your ancestors around the globe? A critical encounter with our own displacements is a key part of the work of restorative solidarity. The second task of historical responsibility is for settlers to encounter the truth of the land and the peoples we came to. What do we know about how our immigrant ancestors had first contact with indigenous people? About how they acquired land or why they couldn't? Early Mennonite settlers to the Canadian prairies procured land in Saskatchewan that had just been taken forcibly from Cree tribes by the Canadian government. In most cases, the fate of indigenous peoples is simply not a part of our settler Mennonite narrative. And these silences fail to recognize that the underside of immigrant opportunity was indigenous displacement. 
And so when the first person's narratives are dismembered, they are replaced by dangerous, devised settler fantasies that the land upon which we settled was essentially uninhabited and free for the taking. This myth, destructive myth, has its ideological roots in the medieval doctrine of discovery, which still undergirds rationalizations of the European conquest and colonization of the, of the Americas. On the other hand, European pioneer narratives typically, typically emphasize heroic tales about ourselves as hardworking, faithful, and resilient people while omitting contradictory or shameful details of how we got the land or what happened to indigenous communities. Such narratives of innocence and or nobility, legitimate settler privilege, and encode attitudes of superiority, which prevented us from learning from traditional indigenous ways, which were more sustainable than those we Westerners have imported here. Similarly, this, the individual myth of we did it ourselves fails to recognize the many instances in which settlers survived initially only because of the aid, compassion, and knowledge of their indigenous neighbors. Studying is fun, because during my studies, I learned that indigenous women fed, clothed, and healed our Mennonite ancestors. They took care of our children. And here is just one example from my community. Amelia Wheeler and her husband Isbrand had come from Prussia to Saskatchewan in 1894, but Isbrand died shortly after their arrival, leaving Amelia in a new country with a strange language to raise a family of nine children. Yeah. On the verge of starvation, in desperation, Amelia sent two of her sons to a nearby chief for help. The ice across the South Saskatchewan River was already breaking up, and it soon would be impossible to cross to the store. Hearing of their desperate plight, the chief risked his life by jumping across the perilous river on the ice flows to get to the store, and then recrossing it with much-needed supplies for the widow and her children. Later, Amelia gave refuge to Almighty Voice, a young Cree man fleeing from the police when he stopped at her cabin for some food. These vignettes run counter to the prevailing notion that there was nothing but hostility between indigenous and settler communities. So such tales can be, become song lines in a revised narrative. Myths of white superiority, Industry and thrift in the pioneer days doubly devise our history. On one hand, they conveniently ignore the long history of systemic dispossession of indigenous communities through broken treaties, land confiscation, forced assimilation through residential schools, and racist law enforcement. And on the other hand, they also ignore the preferential treatment that many settlers enjoyed simply because they were European. Indigenous ignorance about indigenous realities, historically and in the present, 
is a learned condition, and it creates the vacuum in which devised history and myths flourish. What's exciting about what's happening up in uh, Canada after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that treaty history must be taught in, uh, in all of the schools from elementary through to university. Part of our work is to critically revise both intimate family legends and lore that encode settler privilege, as well as the more public narratives that dominate the landscape. And this includes all the ways in which place names and political events are memorialized in plaques and parks, while indigenous history is not. If you haven't already, check out the Assistencia Art Project by Robert Valiente Neighbors that is trying to recover and tell some of that history. Restoring right relations will involve listening to indigenous perspectives and revising many of our cherished separate narratives. And as activists, there is a danger in becoming hypercritical about our past. And we are tempted to exonerate ourselves with our analysis, disassociating ourselves from our ancestors over whom we feel morally superior. Feel that? <laughs> but when we do this, we are not taking into account how much we unconsciously carry that legacy and are impacted by those communal narratives. Sue and I are going to do a workshop again on trauma this afternoon and talk about how we are carrying all this stuff. So I am trying to do my work and understand it as picking up where my ancestors left off or didn't quite get it right. Some of you know that the work, that this work that I'm doing comes out of the research I did with my community beginning in 2012. And it was one thing for me to read about 19th century policies, about clearing the plains of indigenous people, about which I rightly felt angry. But it was another thing to interview elders and family friends, some of whom, despite their blind spots or prejudices, had powerful, of course, and poignant stories to tell. I am deeply grateful to the Mennonite women I got to sit with, again, some of who are respected elders in my community. So when we probe into our family and communal histories, we often uncover uncomfortable things. But the work we're trying to do is about healing, not blaming. We have to complexify. Oh, we have to complexify, but let's not pejoratively distance ourselves. I believe this kind of deep digging is at the core of anti-white supremacy work. It is the constructive work of anti-imperial identity formation. As settlers, we need to privilege stories of oppressed communities who have struggled for liberation. And that is why the pedagogy of this institute, which is primarily a space for dominant culture folk to do our work, we emphasize social movement history. 
and this movement history, these song lines, is mostly centered on communities of color and poor people, including our scriptures. But we as settlers cannot only rely on the stories of other people. So a big part of doing our own work is figuring out what our stories of conviction, allyship, redemption are. What are our song lines? Because as conflicted and contradictory as our European settler history is, if we are to regain our humanity, we also need to recover and honor the stories that were shaped by faith and integrity and compassion. And it is precisely because there are so many powerful dysfunctional narratives around and within us that we need the counter rhythms of song lines. And again, not only the great stories of scripture, but the small tales of our own people doing the right thing, practicing solidarity, mutual aid, and friendship. These are often, for us activists, the hardest stories to hold on to. So I will close with four song lines from European settler communities. And the first comes from my people. As I mentioned briefly, in the late 19th century, the Canadian government confiscated treaty land from the young Chippewaians at Stony Knoll, Saskatchewan, and gave it to newly arriving Mennonite settlers. While we were slow to recognize this historic injustice, in the last quarter century, descendants of Mennonite settlers have been the only settlers that have petitioned the government on behalf of, of their band, on behalf of this landless young Chippewaians, and contributed over 60,000, that's where we are so far, to help indigenous families establish their genealogy. For, the, over, for over 30 years, and some of you will know her, Presbyterian Pastor Murphy Davis has been a tireless advocate for the poorest of the poor in North America, those on the streets and those on death row. She has worked intently on the related issues of homelessness, prison, poverty, class, and racial segregation. She is a mentor of mine and many of you, and a reminder of how class, race, and gender defection can lead to liberation. And here are two examples whose anniversaries we mark this week. This Week in Peace History, if you do not know that, go to that website and be inspired by song lines of peoples from all over the world. And yeah, there's a few settler stories in here. As we noted this week, and especially during the play tonight, we are reflecting on the resonances of both Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Ben, this is for you. 20-year-old Sophia Skoll was a German student and an anti-Nazi political act activist within the White Rose Nonviolent Resistance Group in Nazi Germany. She was convicted of high treason after having been found distributing anti-war leaflets at the University of Munich. She was urging students to rise up and overthrow the Nazi government. As a result, at the age of 22, she was executed February 22, 1943. 
30 years later, on February 22, 1974, in Montauk, Massachusetts, a local farmer, farmer toppled a weather tower for a proposed nuclear power plant. This was the first act of civil disobedience against the dangers of nuclear power in the U.S., helping spark decades of environmental direct action. Lovejoy turned himself into the police, was tried but not convicted. Such stories are both personal and political and they are part of our settlers' people's inspiring songlines. Some of you have already done significant work in this area, but here are some ideas for practical engagement. Interview and videotape, if you can, make sure you audio tape your elders, grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles, other elders in your church. Do not wait until it is too late to learn their stories. Get curious about local history of where you live. Find stories that are recorded, written, or still stewarded by indigenous elders. Take a DNA ancestry test to discover the complexity of your own heritage. A number of us are doing that here. We're pretty excited in March to start a monthly study together. Learn the stories of your family or community's immigration or displacement. And always pay attention to the stories that grandma or grandpa always tell. In the shaft of family lore are the seeds of deep memory. Possibly more than we realize, we are products of the stories within us and around us. And just as Jesus immersed himself in the stories of his people, diving deep into the Jordan in search of their memories, so are we as his disciples to follow him down into the waters to remember and revise our landlines, bloodlines, and songs. Oh, thanks so much. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh.